Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Settle in and get comfortable. We're going to linger a little longer here in South Carolina this week. But before we dig into that, I'd like to take you on a little detour. Unless you live in a cabin in the woods, you've no doubt already been bombarded with the fact that this weekend is Super Bowl Sunday, which also happens to be the one time of year people are actually interested in the industry I earn my living from. Advertising. That's not normally something I'd have reason to talk about here. But as an industry that relies on tapping into the public psyche, advertising can be a great yardstick for measuring what's hot and what's not. It's maybe no surprise, then, given the rise in popularity of our genre, that a horror-inspired ad would wind up being one of the most anticipated of the Super Bowl. What is surprising, though, is that it would come from a company like Olay. Women's skin care wouldn't be the first product category I'd associate with horror. But maybe that's the point. It features Sarah Michelle Gellar, who is a pretty great choice, really, given her role in classics like Buffy, I Know What You Did Last Summer, The Ring, and Scream 2. So far, the ad only has a teaser, but I'm curious to see where it goes on game day. As somebody who's not really much of a sports buff, it might give me a reason to watch. But let's get back on the road. There's one more fright I'd like to scare up here in South Carolina, before we set off in a more northwesterly direction. The state has its fair share of terrifying tales and urban legends that span centuries, but it's also ground zero for a more recent unsettling phenomenon. In mid-2016, an epidemic of creepy clown sightings swept the U.S., 
Some seemed harmless enough, but others carried a more sinister air. The ember that sparked the sudden flare-up of clown sightings, or at least the one that kicked off the mainstream media's coverage of it, happened in August in Greenville County, South Carolina. Donna Arnold's son regularly played in the yard outside of their low-income apartment complex. She had warned her son to stay out of the heavy woods that bordered the property. I doubt, though, that she had killer clowns in mind when she did so. But kids are naturally curious and carefree, and sometimes telling them to stay away is the quickest way to get them to explore somewhere off-limits. I imagine it was getting late, the sun darkening to hues of red and orange as the sodium glow of the streetlights began to flick on around the neighborhood. The boy, immersed in his own imagination, had wandered close to the edge of the forest, and as he looked up from his play, he spotted two figures within the trees, two figures that stood in stark contrast to the lengthening shadows of the woods uncomfortably close to the forest's edge. Two clowns, white-faced and grinning, dressed in colorful motley, one in a bright red wig and the other with a black star painted across his face. As the boy stood frozen, they motioned to him and began to whisper. He should join them, they said. Follow them into the forest. Visit their house at the edge of the pond, deep within the woods. I would imagine the boy paused, weighing his ability to flee before taking off at breakneck speed for the safety of the apartment building. He ran straight into his mother's arms and sobbed out the whole terrifying tale. I'm sure his mother, Donna, was skeptical at first. The yawning shadows of twilight and a strong imagination have a way of playing tricks on young minds, after all. But her skepticism wouldn't last long. They awoke one night, not long afterward, to an incredible crashing and banging at their apartment door, which faced the woods. Peering out the window, Donna caught a glimpse of two clowns running back into the forest a large chain dangling from one of their hands. The apartment door, she discovered after, had been dented and scraped by repeated strikes from the chain. Donna's son wasn't the only child in the complex to report being approached by the clowns either. Several other children claimed to have been offered money to follow the clowns to the house in the forest by the pond. Following the path in the forest down to the house revealed what appeared to be a mostly abandoned structure, with moldering siding, boarded-up windows, and a sagging balcony. Oddly, though, there was fresh potting soil by the back door, and what appeared to be a newly installed security system on the property. However, police found no evidence of clowns when they investigated the area. Whether the stories were true or not, word of other prowling clowns spread from Greenville across the eastern U.S., reaching south into Florida and as far north as New York. Personally, I don't have anything against clowns. 
as long as they're not leering at me from the forest, or waving at me from beneath a streetlight in the middle of the night, or peering at me from the drain on the curbside. But I think it's easy to see why they're so unsettling. There's a sort of uncanny valley effect on the lizard part of the brain that refuses to accept them as natural. Their garish makeup and exaggerated emotions just don't ring true as human. It should really be no surprise, I suppose, that clowns seem to have firmly shifted from purveyors of levity and humor to unsettling agents of fright. Speaking of frights, I think it's time we delivered you some of our own. Our first story of the evening comes to us from Michael Verderber. Michael Verderber's plays, Libertad and The Problem with Robot Dogs, were both staged off-Broadway in New York City. He was a finalist in the Dionysian Festival in Minneapolis for his play The Frequent Withering, and he is the 2016 winner of First Stage Los Angeles's Best Comedy for his play GPS, Gender's Problematic Situation. In August 2017, his play, Unending Repetition, won Best Drama at the Equity Library Theater in New York City. Michael is also the associate editor of the Hurricane Harvey-themed poetry book, Rising Rains, and the co-editor of a play anthology called Zero Untitled, 2007-2013 Hybrid Theater. If you'd like to reach out to him, you can do it via email. Link is in the show notes. Children of the Night, join me for Michael Verderber's Unending Repetition. again. Every moment of my life, I have this dream. I'm in this, in this battlefield. War is everywhere. I hear gunshots, explosions. I am armed. I run to escape the impending death. He comes in the form of a man dressed in all white with a white hat. His grin is sickly. It's frozen in place. I see the beady eyes and his gun is aimed. I see a split second of white burst from the barrel and it all goes stark. And that's where the dream gets weirder. Flickers of numbers, beeps and purrs, nonsense. And in moments, here I am again. I hear it again. I think I hear children laughing. I want to find the children, save them, get them the hell out of this war. Avoid death. Avoid the man in white. Sometimes I wake up in in a factory. Sometimes it's a hallway. But nevertheless, I know that the white-clad bastard is around here. I hear the children laughing, but I can never find them. I can never save them. I can never do anything but die. Well, I guess not everything. See, I, I find these packages on the ground like food. I take it to the children, but they're nowhere to be found. 
Then I notice one floor up. The man in white hat dashes by. He doesn't see me, so I hide. I hear other footsteps, and I know, deep down, the man found me. Another white burst, and I find myself in another part of the room. Most of the doors don't work. They're locked, and I always feel so marooned, like I'm stuck on this island, stuck with this white-clad devil grinning and chasing me down. It's got to mean something, right? Is he my guilt? Does he represent some repressed feeling, trauma, something I experienced? I've racked my brain for years now, but it never lets up. It just keeps recycling for maybe an hour, and then it all goes dark. And it stays dark that way. I know not the time or place I'm at, but I can occasionally hear the children laughing, and I hear the footsteps of the man in white. I know he's coming. Eventually. But certainly. I'm trying to find a way to stop this man, but the cycle of death never ends. In the darkness, nothing moves. I'm held against my will, but at least I don't have to stare at the grinning face of the harbinger of white light. At random moments in this darkness, a light hearkens me alive. Cacophonous sounds beep something electronic. And here I am. I've tried everything. I've hid from the man in black. I've run. I've even stood still, choosing to do nothing. Alas, it yields no results. I hear his footsteps, barely see gunfire, and bam. That's it. The cycle repeats. I've tried suicide. I can't shoot myself, I can only defend. I've tried to jump. I mean, that works. It all goes black, and then I'm back in the factory. Like nothing ever mattered. I can shoot everything around me, but me. The man in white is like a ghost. I've tried to shoot him and he just disappears. And then I hear his footsteps again, running through the island. I tried to find him, reason with him, get some kind of explanation. Nothing. He won't speak. He just kills. And the worst part... I have no memories. I can't remember anything about my childhood. Growing up, first loves, nothing. I just remember what happened recently to me. I can't tell you where I went to school, even if I graduated. This is a joke, right? Like, I'm gonna wake up from this dream and I'll be in my bed and... And... Where the hell do I live? Britain? America, I live in this endless cycle of running and dying with no semblance of change. My only reprieve is in the darkness. I know that doesn't change, but it, it isn't exactly welcoming. This is purgatory. This is hell.
That was Michael Verderber's Unending Repetition, as read by Matt Bradford. Matt Bradford is a Canadian voice actor, writer, and editor who can be heard on the No Sleep podcast, ZombieCast, and Video Game Outsiders. Outside of the booth, he can be found chasing his kids, hunting down voicing gigs, and gaming into the wee hours. You can find him on Twitter at Matto McFly. Thank you, Matt. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our second story of the evening comes to us from Rory Say. Rory Say lives somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. In his spare time, he is compelled to write strange tales dictated to him by a morbid muse. The following is one such tale. Join me for Rory Say's The Tenant, a Tales to Terrify original. I know that each of you here has already heard some version or other of this tale, and possibly you know it well enough to recount it yourself. But, since you insist, I'll tell you again what I know about the tenant. It happened that I was with the visitor, as I understand he's become known, on the night that, as far as anyone can tell, all of this began. The exact nature of our relationship, I guess you'd say, was incidental. During this time, I was new to the small town in which this incident took place, having recently moved there to attend the college. My flatmate, who I didn't actually know very well, was close friends with the visitor, and the two of them would often stay up late, much to my annoyance, chatting in our apartment. On the night in question, they were doing just that, drinking steadily 
and discussing the various misfortunes that had recently befallen our hapless guest. It might disappoint you that I cannot elaborate upon these misfortunes, as I'm not privy to their nature. I might have, at one time, had some incomplete understanding of what was going on in the visitor's life prior to his encounter, since he spent a great deal of time in our apartment conversing with my flatmate, and would occasionally speak to me directly when it seemed necessary. But, for the most part, when the visitor was over, I would retreat into the privacy of my bedroom and concentrate on my studies, or distract myself in some other manner. But the exact details of these misfortunes might not be very crucial. I think it only needs to be understood that certain circumstances, which I know my indirect acquaintance would insist were beyond his control, led him to be estranged from his family and, literally speaking, homeless, although this was never a word he used himself or a condition he would admit to. And though he refused to trouble my flatmate, as he always put it, whenever he was offered to sleep in our apartment, and assured him he had places available, it had become common knowledge around town that he was spending most nights in the park. And so, at some point between midnight and one in the morning on the night in question, after declining my flatmate's invitation of hospitality, the visitor left our apartment and wandered out into a cold November night. The next time I saw him was during an uncustomary morning visit, two days after his departure on the night previously described, I was returning to my apartment during a break between classes and entered in the midst of a conversation between the visitor and my flatmate. And so while I may have missed some kind of introductory exposition, I nevertheless got the sense our guest was describing a strange episode he experienced after leaving our apartment two nights previous. I found myself intrigued by the visitor's excitement and so I feigned duties in the kitchen in order to overhear what was being said. The visitor was describing being lost en route to the park. This seemed odd to me, the town being very small, and our apartment being less than a kilometre from the park, but the visitor insisted that, while he was walking down the familiar street, somehow the very essence of his surroundings became skewed in some way. When my flatmate asked if he could possibly be more specific, our guest used the analogy of visiting a familiar locale in a dream, and finding it indescribably changed, and how we often don't register this change until we reflect on the dream after waking. For one thing, he said, the night seemed unnaturally dark, and he belatedly noticed the streetlights that lined the road were simply not there anymore, wherever he was now. Even the stars and the moon seemed muted. My flatmate countered by pointing out that it had begun to snow that night, so no wonder he couldn't make out the light from heavenly bodies, and couldn't this change in weather account for the seemingly unnatural darkness? To this, I guess swore that there was no snow that night, at least that he saw, nor any clouds in the sky. He continued walking in the direction of where he figured the park should be, but now, through the thick darkness, he could scarcely see a few feet in front of him. All that he could make out was the road ahead and brick buildings on either side, and as he walked on and on, it seemed like these surroundings were unending. Eventually he retraced his steps to find familiar territory and orient himself, but the road in the other direction never changed. It was a straight line that was lined by brown brick buildings that functioned more like solid walls because there were no gaps in their structure, no alleyways he could walk down in the hopes of emerging in an area known to him. 
The only reason, he said, that he thought of these brick structures as buildings rather than solid walls was because all along them were evenly spaced, ground-level curtained windows, themselves endless and identical to one another. And so he walked, feeling as though he had no alternative, down the road in the dark. After an indeterminate period of time, he saw, some distance ahead, a bluish rumour of light coming from one of the ground-level windows. As he approached, he saw that beside the window, which was exactly alike the countless others along the street, save for the dim radiance behind its curtains, was a black door. He walked up to the door and knocked, but found the sound his knuckles made was barely audible, as though the door was made of rubber, even though it looked and felt like wood. As he was about to turn away, he noticed a crumpled piece of paper lodged inside the keyhole of the door, and, taking it out and unfurling it, he read a two-word message scrawled in black, capital letters. Come in. He found the door to be unlocked, and entered the building. Inside looked like a typical low-income apartment, although the indifferent lighting didn't allow very much to be seen clearly. What the visitor first noticed was a loud buzzing, as though a swarm of insects was nearby. This noise, as well as the bluish emanation that had lured him from the outdoors, and was the only light inside, both seemed to have their source in a room immediately to the left. Upon entering this room, the visitor found that the noise and the light came from an old television that sat upon a metal stand against one wall of the room. Against the opposite wall sat a man, whose age was hard to determine, partly on account of a complicated breathing apparatus that obscured his face beneath the eyes. The man did not acknowledge the visitor, who was still standing in the doorway of this room. He simply sat absolutely still, covered in blankets, staring ahead. Beside the man was a vacant armchair, identical to the one he was sitting on, and somehow it was conveyed to the visitor that he was invited to come into the living room and sit down in the armchair beside the man. Or perhaps it only seemed there was no sensible alternative, because other than the armchair and the television set and the man, there was nothing whatsoever in the room. The vacant armchair appeared old like an antique, but looked and felt like it had never been sat on before. The static from the television across the room was vibrant in the darkness, and something about its strange bluish hue was acutely alluring, so that the visitor soon found himself staring intently at the screen. Even its buzzing noise, which sounded harsh at first, now began to have a mesmeric effect. Occasionally, the static on the screen would be interrupted by a single frame of what looked exactly like the street the visitor had just spent possibly hours walking down. The viewpoint was from the centre of the street, and all that could be seen was a few feet of dark road head and brick-windowed walls on either side that faded into the darkness, and then more static would swallow the image until it reappeared at random intervals. The tenant which is the name by which the visitor always referred to the man he found seated in this room when I heard him recount this tale, still made no indication that he noticed someone had just entered his home and sat down next to him. He simply stared ahead, either watching the television or seeing nothing at all. 
Exactly how long the two of them spent silently seated together in the room is unknown, but I have reason to suspect it was quite a long time. The visitor described the interval as comfortable at first, even soothing, but at length he began to feel a sensation akin to sleep paralysis, although he was very insistent that he was wide awake during this whole period. He felt, after some time in the armchair, that he was no longer able to move his limbs, or even turn his head to look anywhere else in the room other than straight ahead at the television. This became especially alarming when he could see in his peripheral the tenant begin to move in his chair, slightly at first, but with gradually increasing violence until it appeared that he was convulsing uncontrollably. Strangely, though, these apparent convulsions were noiseless and still all that could be heard was the static from the television and, more quietly, the low respiratory sounds from the tenant's breathing apparatus. When the tenant's convulsive episode appeared to cease, the visitor felt his own right arm reach into the chest pocket of his jacket and retrieve an unopened can of beer. The visitor maintained that he did not consciously perform this action, nor was he in control of opening the can and drinking from it. As he took an involuntary gulp, a coarse noise like the groaning of disused machinery erupted from the visitor's left, and he realised the sound was, somehow, coming from the tenant. It seemed impossible for a human to be making these noises, but it was clear to the visitor that the tenant was communicating with him, and the message conveyed, perhaps via telepathy or something similar, was that the tenant wanted the visitor to go into the kitchen and bring him a can of beer from the fridge. When the noise ceased, the visitor found the spell of paralysis, as it were, had lifted, and he once again had control over his body. He rose from the armchair and looked at the tenant, who, in spite of his apparent convulsive episode, was completely still, and in the exact position he had been when the visitor first entered the room. The visitor decided to fulfil the tenant's request, and so he left the living room and walked down the hallway into the kitchen. The fridge, however, was empty nor did it even seem to be functional. As he looked around the room, he saw that the countertops and all of the cupboards were likewise empty. There was nothing in the room. No table, no chairs, no cooking utensils or appliances. There was no evidence that anyone had ever entered the room before. When he returned to the living room to report that there was no beer in the fridge, the tenant made no acknowledgement and simply stared on, as ever. Feeling as though there were nothing more to be done, the visitor announced that he would be on his way. Another series of mechanical grinding noises issued from where the tenant was sitting. Another series of mechanical grinding noises issued from where the tenant was sitting, and the visitor knew that he was welcome to return at any future time of his convenience. He then left the tenant's home and closed the black door behind him. At this stage, the visitor paused in the recounting of his story, apparently awaiting a response from my flatmate, who urged him to continue, and asked what had happened once he left the tenant's home, and where he had spent the previous day and night. The visitor looked confused and said that he had come directly here, after what he had just described, that when he walked out of the tenant's home, the world, as it were, had returned to normal. He was no longer on that unlit street that never seemed to end, and it was no longer night. It was early this morning, and he was in the park. When he looked behind him, there was no black door or window, only the brick wall that encloses the park. 
my flatmate informed him that it was not last night, but the night before last when he had left their apartment. And for this, the visitor had no rational explanation, but only reached into the back pocket of his jeans and withdrew a creased piece of paper that he unfolded and placed atop the coffee table, presenting it as though it offered absolute verification to his unbelievable story. I walked from the kitchen close enough to read the two large black words written on the paper. Come in. As I left to return to my classes at the college, the visitor and my flatmate remained in the apartment, discussing various aspects of the visitor's story. My own impression was that it was a strangely elaborate fiction invented by the visitor because he was too proud or embarrassed to admit where he'd actually spent the previous two nights. Much has been said, subsequently, about the character of the visitor, whether he suffered from mental ailments and or addictions, and while I think dwelling on these possibilities isn't important, not to mention at this stage it would be impossible to prove anything along these lines, I will say that he had eccentric tendencies, in the way naturally artistic personalities usually have eccentric tendencies. This is to say I would not have put it past him to invent the story he told, especially, of course, since nothing about it was remotely believable. But at the time when I left that day to return to my classes, I could not have known that I would never see the visitor again, and I was forced to re-evaluate my thoughts in light of his disappearance. I privately relished his absence at first, since his near-constant presence in my home disturbed my studies and my sleep. Still, I found myself turning that strange story over and forming that bleak setting in my mind, the unlit, unending street, the brick buildings to either side, and imagining the visitor stumbling along in the darkness, drawn towards a spectral light. But then I would scoff and tell myself he'd probably left town to try to re-establish himself somewhere else. My flatmate, on the other hand, was more affected, and grew concerned when a week passed with no news from his vagrant friend. After yet another week, the real strangeness began. Rumour began to seep through town of a man sometimes encountered at night in the park, a man who had never been seen in the small town before. It was my flatmate who first told me. He overheard two ladies discussing an encounter one of them had had the night prior while walking her dog. My flatmate interrupted the discussion and pressed the woman with questions. She described a man sitting on a bench in the park with some kind of medical instrument covering most of his face. As she walked by and said good evening, he neither spoke nor moved in reply, but simply stared ahead of himself. She said she might have thought he was dead if it weren't for the quiet sounds his breathing device made. And, though that was the extent of their interaction, the woman said there was something about the man that unsettled her, as though he could see something she couldn't through his unblinking eyes. Needless to say, this information disturbed my flatmate, who afterwards became increasingly paranoid. For a while, people remarked that the vagrant, who was often seen sleeping or loitering in the park, was no longer there, but now more and more townsfolk were trading stories of the park's new occasional resident. Nobody knew who he was or where he came from, but some people suggested that possibly this man was the vagrant, who had experienced some freak accident, or others weren't convinced there was any connection between the two. At any rate, those who did find this new man in the park were never able to extract information from him, at least by conventional means. He never spoke, but certain people reported strange noises, more mechanical than human, that seemed to come from inside him, 
noises that filled their heads with specific thoughts. Often those who encountered the man had trouble sleeping afterwards and dreams they were reluctant to talk about. And while most claimed that he never moved, there was talk of a man who, while jogging through the park one evening, was alarmed to notice a man lying flat on his back in a clearing just off the pathway, flailing his arms and legs up in the air. When the jogger approached to see if he could be of assistance, he saw that there was nothing natural about the contortions a man's limbs were making, that they bent strangely and writhed upwards as though there were no bones in them. And while this story and others like it circulated, no one seemed to know who exactly the jogger was, or any other first-hand witnesses, and mostly these kinds of tales were dismissed as baseless superstition. People began to refer to the strange man in the park as the tenant, for no reason they could account other than the name just seemed to come into their heads. For my own part, I was unnerved by news of this purported newcomer to town, for the same obvious reason my flatmate was, but I tried not to succumb to his paranoia. He had already been searching for his friend day and night, and now he was convinced this mysterious man held the answer to his disappearance. The problem was that the man people called the tenant only seemed to appear to the unsuspecting, and before long the park was generally shunned. My flatmate, though, practically lived in the place, obsessed by the prospect of encountering this elusive man. He began spreading the story of his friend's encounter with the tenant to anyone who would listen, and though the story quickly circulated and mutated, before long my flatmate was himself shunned. He came by our home every now and then, only to ask if I had heard any news of his old friend, but I never did. On his final visit, I was shocked to see the state of him. He looked crazed and unslept, and he was hopelessly manic. When I tried to calm him down, he didn't seem to hear me, nor could he even speak properly but only utter fragments of deranged thoughts, all seeming to revolve around the tenant, for that was the word that surfaced most frequently through his gibbering. After he left, I called the authorities and told them about the condition of my flatmate and where they were likely to find him. But no one ever saw him again. At the same time my flatmate vanished, it seemed the tenant did as well. Gossip about the man in the park was still general for a while, as were different versions of the mad-sounding town my flatmate began to circulate before his own disappearance, but no new sightings were reported. Even when the talk died down, there remained an anxiousness that pervaded the townsfolk, as though there were an unspoken thought on everyone's mind. The apparent departure of the tenant did nothing to attract people back to the park, however, which was still seen as an unfavourable place. It was ostensibly for this reason that, after some months of neglect, an out-of-town company came and levelled the park, and in its place began construction on a series of housing units. The project was met with quiet controversy around town, but no one seemed to openly protest it. One simply heard whispers of disapproval, and still no locals would go near the site. And then, as if in answer to everyone's resentment, construction was abruptly cancelled after only a few weeks. The official reason given was, if I recall correctly, complications in funding. But of course this only triggered another whirlwind of speculation. The prevailing theory was that something unexpected had been uncovered beneath the park, though there was no consensus as to what this something was. Some suggested that the bodies of the two recently disappeared young men were found impossibly deep beneath the ground, while others claimed that some kind of mass grave had been unearthed. No one had forgotten about the tenant, either, 
and many theories purported that he was somehow responsible, or at least in some way connected to the project's cancellation. But it seemed nothing could be proven. After the out-of-town company demolished the work they had done, they left town as quickly as they had come. Almost, it seemed, as if to evade interrogation. The site where the park had been was now a square half-kilometre of rubble, and still no one would go near it, not that there was any reason to any longer. In the wake of this latest matter, as talk about the cancelled construction was rampant, some people began to speak of new strangers spotted in town. Not strangers like the tenant, but well-dressed men who prowled nightly through the demolished construction site in black vehicles. They never talked to anyone, and some said they would drive away quickly if approached. If nothing else, their presence seemed to confirm that something unspoken, perhaps unspeakable, had in fact occurred during the construction in the park, and I think by now it goes without saying that a new batch of rumours was born. I was thankful it was around this time that my semester at the college finished, and I was finally able to move out of the town. Even though I tried to distance myself from the hysteria that had come to consume the place, it was impossible, especially because I was now being routinely interviewed by both locals and authorities who wanted to know more about, or verify certain details regarding, my missing flatmate and the visitor. As I was packing up my belongings into boxes one April morning, and preparing to vacate the apartment I had occupied during my stay in that strange town, I was interrupted by a knock on the front door. It annoyed me because I had a great deal of packing to do, and so I stood still and silent, hoping my unwanted caller would assume I wasn't home. The knocker persisted, and I found myself reminded of how the visitor would always knock continuously on our door until my flatmate, or, reluctantly, myself, would open it for him. The knocker on that April morning was not the visitor, or any local I was familiar with, nor was it any of the police officers I had spoken to in the wake of my flatmate's disappearance. It was a man in a pitch-black suit who wore dark-tinted glasses and had a face that never hinted towards any kind of expression. He let himself in as soon as I opened the door, practically pushing me back into the apartment. Without introducing himself, he asked me a series of questions, all of which, it seemed, he already knew the answers to. And although the questions were ones I had been asked countless times before, I got the impression the man was studying my responses carefully, trying to gauge whether I knew anything I wasn't divulging. When the interrogation was over, the man told me that I was right to leave town, and that if I knew what was good for me, I would never return. He told me not to talk about any of this with anyone else, no friends, no family, and besides, who would believe any of it, even if I did? Naturally, I felt threatened by his words, but nodded in compliance. As he opened the door and was about to leave, he turned back to me, and with no indication of irony or humour, said that he was never here, that this conversation never took place. I never did return to that town, and have never desired to, nor have I kept in touch with anyone I knew while living there, and I suppose you'll just have to take my word for it when I tell you that I have not spread the story of the tenant or told anyone about these experiences. Occasionally, when I mention that I once lived in that town, people look at me in a sideways way and ask if there's any truth to those crazy things you sometimes hear about the place. I only shrug and say, I wouldn't know. Probably not. How could there be? But I'd be lying if I said it wasn't still on my mind. Rarely at the forefront, but always nestled somewhere, 
like the remnants of a lucid nightmare that resurface unexpectedly, unavoidably. The more years that pass, the more it feels as though it really was a dream, an impossible occurrence that only happened inside my head. But of course it happened. Isn't that why we're here now? I imagine it's happening again, if it ever stopped happening. Why else would you have found me and brought me here, wherever we are? But I know asking you these questions would be pointless, so I won't bother. I'm not even sure I'd want to know the answers, even if you would tell me. And, of course, I know what you're going to say next, so you won't have to bother with that either. None of us were here. None of this ever happened. This conversation never took place. That was Rory Say's The Tenant, as read by Matt Dovey. Matt Dovey is very tall and very English, and, most likely, drinking a cup of tea right now. He has a scar on his arm that he can't remember getting, but a terrible darkness floods his mind when he considers it. He now lives in a quiet market town in rural England with his wife and three children. And despite being a writer, he still hasn't found the right words to properly express the delight and joy he finds in this wonderful arrangement. His surname rhymes with Dopey, but many other similarities to the dwarf are purely coincidental. He is the Golden Pen winner for Writers of the Future, Volume 32, 2016, and his fiction out and forthcoming all over the place. You can keep up with him at mattdovey.com or follow along on Facebook and Twitter, both as at MattDoveyWriter. Thank you, Matt. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Consider supporting our podcast on Patreon via the link in the show notes, and like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson, and website by Josh Leitze. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I look forward to seeing you again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.